0: All right, we got Bill Murray meatballs in there. Great.
1: <laughs> one of the great silent phones, one of the great silent <laughs> classes. Uh, welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 119. Today, uh, we're talking about silent movies. Obviously, that's almost ridiculous. It's silent movies. We should do
0: a silent podcast.
1: <laughs> that's almost like saying we're just going to talk about all movies made between 1930 and 1960. This is a very broad topic. But just to tee it up, I do think it is a worthy topic because silent cinema is a cinema that as it gets further and further away from us is going to get more and more distant. And yet, I believe... There is so much in movies that were made pre-1929 when sound cinema really became standardized that we could learn from today. I actually think there's a way of storytelling that would blow people's minds today if it was harnessed and given an idiom, a 21st century idiom. And I would encourage people to watch movies pre-1929 because the storytelling is in the best of it, purely cinematic. But that's what we're talking about today. Who's with us?
0: Oh, hey, it's Daniel and Kevin. Hey, it's me, Connolly, Cruz, the People's Champion.
1: America.
2: It's uh, it's another day here on the, on
0: the on the thing. The strong Coke drinker has logged on. <laughs> oh
1: yeah. <laughs> edwin's not responsible for what he says today because he's drinking strong coke
3: edwin have you seen people that do like the spin they make a funnel in the bottle and they just one shot the coke youtube it i want a video of you doing that on my desk edwin could shotgun coke has anyone taught edwin how to shotgun a coke
1: yeah no i don't think you'd enjoy it but i'm not i'm not sh- i'm not schmuck for doing something a schmuck would do jews i apologize to everyone i've told edwin that that is not a Yiddish word to use lightly, and Edwin doesn't care. Edwin doesn't care about Jewish people. Edwin does care about Jewish people. I'm giving you a chance to say you care. He's trying to burp. I do care, I just, I got a a burp coming. (laughs) There you go. All right, we're good, we're good. Edwin's just gonna be all over the place with the Strong Coke. And I'm Craig, (laughs) the founder, programmer, of Secret Movie Club. Wonderful to have everybody here. Future Connor, what's going on, baby? Well, Craig,
0: this Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater, we're showing Lost Highway on 35mm, David Lynch's Neo Nightmare, and we have editor Mary Sweeney there, who's edited tons of stuff with David Lynch, Fire Walk With Me, Mulholland Drive, The Straight Story. She will be doing a Q&A after the movie. You can find out more info at secretmovieclub.com. That's this Saturday, September 24th. And we got our whole October, November, December schedule up also at secretmovieclub.com. But most importantly, when we cut back to the past, if Edwin mentions Rocky Three, like I'm talking about Rocky Three, like that's a movie we're showing, that's how you know his mind has been infiltrated and corrupted by the deep state. Let's take a listen.
1: Edwin, how about them apples, baby? What do you think? Rocky
2: 3, I'm all in, man. Find a choice of real cinema. <laughs> As
1: always, you can go to Eventbrite to get tickets. You can find out about everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. You can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. We do read all the emails, which is getting harder and harder. But Daniel and Josh are doing it. God bless them. Today, we're talking about silent cinema, which really is a misnomer. I was taught this in film school, and i it's one of the things I agreed with wholeheartedly the first moment I heard of it. Movies were actually never silent. It's really not the way to talk about the era of cinema pre-1929. Almost all movies had sound and musical accompaniment from the very beginning. It would be music played on a Victrola or a live accompaniment. Often studios would send out scores the way that you would get like Mozart's your Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, you get the score for Murnau's The Last Laugh, and a chamber orchestra or whatever you could get together would play it. There were Victrolas, you could do that. You even would have, uh, in Japan, there were these Benshees who would narrate the movie. Akira Kurosawa's older brother was a very famous benshi in Tokyo, and they would sit at the side of the screen, and it was an honored position to have, and they would be like... uh who was the guy who did all the Harry Potter books, Jim Dale? They would narrate the movie, but they, it was more than just, and then this happened, they would play the parts, they would get you into it. So sound was always a part of cinema, but pre-1929, movies did not come with dialogue. Instead, whatever was being said, you would see on an intertitle. It was called an intertitle. And that actually made movies more international because all you would really have to switch was the intertitles. And then a- anytime they would do an insert of a newspaper headline, you'd probably... Reshoot that, and I, th- I know they did in the language of the country that it was in, or you would just have an inner title or a subtitle translating it. But nevertheless, there was a way of communicating cinematically. Now, like everything, like all cinema some movies were very lazy about it. It's not right to be like, oh, all movies were better in the pre-1929 era. They weren't. There was a lot of junk. There was probably a lot of stuff that was just close up, medium shot coverage type stuff that really relied on way too many inner titles. Uh, So I think we have to be realistic about this. The stuff that we're still watching a hundred years later, a hundred plus years later, is the stuff that's endured just like anything. So we really are probably still watching the best of the best. I just want to throw that some of the best the best stuff has visual storytelling and cinematic storytelling that's almost never been equaled in my opinion. Movies like F.W. Murnau's The Last Laugh and Sunrise, even Nosferatu. Movies like Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc and Vampyr. Movies like Todd Browning's horror films from the 1920s pre-sound are pretty horrifying. Movies like, I think it's called West of Zanzibar, The Man Who Laughs. Now some of these might not have been directed by Todd Browning, so forgive me. Victor Sjöström's The Phantom Carrot. Buster Keaton movies, Charlie Chaplin movies, Harold Lloyd movies, the silent comedies still have some of the best stunts ever. And this is all queued up by the fact that we're showing, by the time you hear this, it'll be done, but we're showing the 1920 The Mark of Zorro at the Million Dollar Theater with a live orchestra. The Mark of Zorro was a Douglas Fairbanks movie made in 1920 that is actually to this day viewed as probably one of the first, if not the first action, adventure, summer blockbuster. And uh, what's interesting about that was that Douglas Fairbanks, prior to Marco Zorro, was known for just being a matinee idol in boy-meets-girl movies, and he was sick of it. He was kind of like Brad Pitt, and he was like... uh, I'm sick of this. And he was very athletic. He did crazy stunts. I think he was watching with his buddies, Charlie Chaplin. And he was like, uh, you know, I'd rather do that. That's just more impressive and more challenging. So he optioned and co-wrote under a pseudonym, The Mark of Zorro. He found it in a magazine. Zorro is the movie in the original DC comics that a young Bruce Wayne watches and leaves with his parents when his parents are killed because they're acknowledging that Batman is a riff on Zorro, who was like a rich guy who everybody thought was a totally ineffectual rich dilettante who really would dress in a black cape with a black mask and would help the poor. And then Batman was the American Zorro. Daniel, silent cinema. Three sentences
3: or less. Oh, silent cinema, silent cinema. Good. Great. Adwin. Silent Cinema. Daniel, sorry. (laughs) Silent Cinema has a weird thing of being like a thing associated with like film school, I guess. Sort of something you're forced into. Displayed as education and history rather than being art and entertainment to a degree that I think is sometimes to the detriment of it. If it's viewed as it's a singular interesting concept in a time, there's so much beauty in it, I think. It's portrayed in a way that makes it seem intimidating or uninteresting to get into. And as with anything, I think it just has to be set up and... Viewed in the right context, maybe my nephews are my testing ground, but something like City Lights or any of Chaplin stuff or Buster Keaton stuff I think reads regardless of age and the visual medium of it does everything it needs to.
1: I have people in my family, and I get it, I don't, I really don't judge it. Different strokes for different folks, and we've talked about a version of this before many times actually on the podcast, but I have people in my family who won't watch a black and white movie. They think that they're missing something, and they find them boring. They legitimately find them boring. And no matter what you show them, (laughs) you could show them Night of the Living Dead. You'd be like, look, Night of the Living Dead is in black and white. And they'd be like, ah, it's black and white. It's boring. I'm missing something. I'm missing color.
0: What do they respond to more modern movies that are in black and white? As a choice.
1: I think that what's coded for them, if it's in black and white, I think they're ready to yawn. Because I, I think what you're
0: setting up is the idea that like, because me and Edwin have talked about how there's certain older periods of stuff where me and Edwin and me especially, I, I'm very willing to try and like look and see and like I'm open minded and I'm never like, hey, I don't want it. It is interesting. Black and white's one of those. I remember that in like high school having friends who didn't like black and white, but black and white's always been one. That's never bothered me. But I understand what you're saying, setting up, like, silent films. I'll still try a silent film, but there is, like, a barrier, a little bit more of a barrier there to me, which I think has less to do with them being a silent film and to be honest more to do with the age because like if a newer movie is coming out and it's choice to be silent that's probably not going to be much of a mark against it i'll probably be like okay
3: it's also a thing of like circumstance of how you can watch it like i think silent films really i mean we're theater people but i think they really benefit from a theater where your chance to be distracted is taken away because it is hard it's the same thing i think i have a lot of family members that struggle with international films it's not the reading, but it's the you cannot break attention because if you do, then you, you're lost. Or in, in silent films, you have to pay attention because uh, besides the musical cues, everything is visual. And so there's that, too. It's hard, I think, to sit on your couch maybe and watch something when everything around you presents another thing, whether it's intentional or not. You know, checking a text on your phone in the middle of it, suddenly you've, you're have you a minute behind and you have no concept where you are.
2: Uh, you know, silence. <laughs> silent pictures. Yeah, they're Okay. I'm not the craziest guy silent pictures, but you know, I've got around to some of them, you uh, know. They were like before sound was even created. This, that's how people watch movies, you know? Just like you see images, you hear music, like, oh, that's good. That's it right there. You were later, boom, talkies came in. And the thing about silent movies is when, when sound came around, it was kind of bad for people who were acting that didn't have any dialogue. Because their voices were like not, you know, meant for the other things, for talking pictures. A
1: whole group of actors were made obsolete. Because their voices
2: didn't like sound as great because they didn't have to do it. They just, all, all they needed to do was show their looks and just mouth a few things and that's it.
1: I don't know now. It's got to be 10 years or more. The best picture winner was The Artist, which uh, was a movie about the silent era in which I think there's only one line of dialogue which is very clever at the end, which reveals exactly what you're talking about, why the Jean Dujardin character, it was hard for him to transition because you discover he's in America, but he has an accent, that he's uh, very French. Uh, So there's an example of a silent movie just made 10 years ago. I mean, very conscious choice, and it won Best Picture, and it has one line of dialogue, but I mean, you bring up a good point about when technology leaves folks behind.
2: Now, if we're talking about silent pictures, you know, like, the Kid, The General, The Passion of John of Warwick. Those are a great silent picture, but there's one silent picture that's the greatest of them all. And you already know what I'm going to say, Craig. I think you do. Mel Brooks' silent movie.
1: <laughs> I should have guessed that. Yeah, that's an interesting one because that's an example of someone in the modern era, the 70s, who decided to riff on a, a form. Silent movie is funny. I like silent movie. My favorite joke, and it's the Burt Reynolds joke, <laughs> For some reason, in the shower.
2: Whoa, that's that. Well, that's the only part he thought was funny. The whole movie is hilarious.
0: He said that was his favorite part.
2: Well, you should have textualized that. Thank you, Connor, he's, for
1: clearing out. what he
0: said.
2: Well, Connor, it should have said what you said, Connor.
1: Edwin always assumes the worst about me. I'm your used blind
0: to it. rage has blinded <laughs> you. It's
1: that strong coke, Edwin. God, you just keep <laughs> hitting
0: it. That's strong coke. And the thing about strong coke also is it still has all of the cocaine that Coca-Cola used to have in
1: it. Clearly. you can hear it.
0: My experience with silent films is also kind of what Daniel was saying, where it's like very film school, not just even in what you're made to watch, but even in what you're made to make early on, which I think is a good thing probably, but it definitely can, coming from somebody who I had made like tons of stuff in high school, it is frustrating when you get into college and they're just like, you have to like for two years, you can't make anything with dialogue. And was like, all right.
3: There's a value in learning this as a craft, but it's presented as like an ultimatum as if they're punishing you for it. Like, well, you'll eventually get access to this instead of presented as like, no, this is like a really interesting way to form your storytelling craft. But they don't do that. That's such a
1: great point, Daniel. I agree with you. All three of us have gone to film school, Daniel, Connor and, and me. And it's only retrospectively that I'll go, oh, I see why they did that. Why was it so hard for them to set it up in a way that made it an
3: exciting challenge? Maybe they're dreading having to watch them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think there's something about that, about the like school is such a double edged sword because it it is important. uh, It's something that should be supported. But it's also something that if you do a bad job of it, it's like a net negative. Like I had so many friends in grade school who didn't like reading because they were forced to read books at school. And I think that happens to a lot of people because you're forced, you know, you're like 15 years old and they're making you read like Wuthering Heights or whatever. And you're like, what the hell is this? As opposed to like trying to engage with you and personal opinions about Wuthering Heights aside, people don't do a good job of framing that stuff and setting it up and giving stuff to people when they'd be able to really like engage with it as opposed to just sort of like, eh, well, whatever. Like, you gotta read this, you gotta see this, you gotta do that,
1: or whatever. I'm gonna turn 45 soon. I still love life. I can't get enough of it, and I mean that. But what's interesting as you get older is you realize that most of us, and this is not a judgment, but we don't set things up right for everybody else. Like, most approaches to things are sort of mediocre and you you realize man if it was just approached or handled even when you think that theoretically not that you could do better but what you're getting at connor is every generation maybe because we're just trying to get by and we don't have time to really think about it we don't have we don't have time to really devote ourselves to educational methodology but everybody's like just do it <laughs> because just read it it's a classic and you're right We should have learned after a million years of proto-human nature that when you push someone, you force someone, the reaction is to lean away from it. And I don't know what the methodology is to get people excited about stuff, but in a genuine way and say, hey, look, we're not telling you to make silent movies but this is gonna be a great tool. It's like you're learning how to really be a master of an electric screwdriver or how to really be a master of framing. And you're gonna build the house you want a house, but we're just teaching you framing. And believe it or not, if you can frame, you can build any kind of house that you want. And so just take a year here to frame, and then, you know, sound and dialogue, that's all a tool. We're going to get to those tools later. I just wonder why that's not thought of. I don't know.
3: It makes you feel unapproachable in a way that I think kind of stinks. Because I think people, I mean, there's just personal preference, which is totally fine. But I think if it didn't feel like a thing you were going to be forced into, or like, again, that sort of gatekeeping thing, if it's lesser, if you don't respect what came before in regards to that, like there's just some, you know, everyone's brain chemistry is different. And to be like you don't like silent films and like, do you really understand film? Like that's not fair. And also they're never going to watch something now because you're being a a poopy boy.
0: A <laughs> jerk. It's interesting. Our silent film episode became more about education. This is just me on a soapbox now. The biggest failure of the American public education system is that people, so many people will just say they hate reading. Edwin says it. It's nuts. You hate reading? What do you mean? And I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the public education see it system. But
1: this this then scares me when you say that, Connor, and not Edwin doesn't scare me that you hate reading, because I hear that from a lot of people too. I,
2: I read subtitles on movies sometimes. Actually, no, I do all the
1: time. A lot of people, my mom hates subtitles on movies. That's dumb. But I have people in my family close to me who don't like it when I open a book around them. And I love reading, I have a book in my bag at all times, so no matter where I am, I'm in the line at the DMV or at the bank or whatever, I just pull out the book and I read it. And I read to my kids every night because to me, and I don't mean to sound like a library PSA, but reading is an adventure to me. Like, it makes my world bigger. Every time I read a new book, I just feel better and more grounded, like I can get through life more. Because I'm like, oh, there's a point of view, there's something I didn't think about, there's whatever. And what I worry about, Connor, this is my thing to you, is I think, inculcating a normalization of hating reading is one way to move towards dictatorship. Because then you're not gonna get your information on your own in a self-driven way from books, you're just gonna wanna have it given to you. And if you're gonna allow people to give you information, then they can tell you whatever they want. Not to go off on this, but one professor or teacher was telling me this horrible moment, I think we even touched on it on our podcast, where they were talking about World War II and someone came up to them and wanted to talk to them about when Hitler was killed in that movie theater in France, you know, in 1944. And the professor's like, Hitler was not killed in a movie theater. What are you talking about? And it was like, no, Hitler shot himself in a bunker in 1945 when the allies were surrounding Berlin. they're like, no, 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 no. Hitler was killed by this elite troop. They were known as the bastards. And they were in a theater and they were like, no, that's a fictional movie. And I know I'm going to an extreme there, but we're doing something wrong. We're doing something wrong if people don't enjoy learning about history and teaching themselves and being able to have the tools to know what's BS and what's not BS. And
3: I think the, like, the infrastructure to understand that there's different ways to learn it, even stuff like the insane popularity of true crime documentaries. Like there's a type of presentation for history that can work with everyone. You just sort of find it. It's not a one method, a one size fits all type of thing. Yeah,
1: it's a great point. Everybody loves true crime.
3: Which the way that presentation, it can stick with you. It can be watched casually, but it also can be dense. That medium appeals. So maybe, you know, you just haven't found the thing that appeals to you the right way.
1: Maybe if everything was presented in a true crime way, you know, if you presented Wuthering Heights I mean, look, you don't want to be the dorky teacher who comes in costume and tries to do true crime for your kids and your 15 year olds are like, get the F out of here. But if instead of you have to read Wuthering Heights, I guess Wuthering Heights is is of course about Heathcliff. And what's the other lead in Wuthering Heights? I don't remember. The, yeah. It's not my favorite. I'm actually <laughs> Wuthering Heights is a great example because I also read Wuthering Heights and I was like. This is romance for another era where people <laughs> like to treat each other horribly. <laughs> but but it's still an interesting book.
0: It feels like it should be more of like a college book than a high school book, like the older I get. Because it just, I feel like in high school, you're just really like not there, you know.
1: But Heathcliff is like a proto bad boy. I mean, again, I'd want to figure out a way to talk about it. But the idea that the woman falls in love with a gothically tormented bad boy That's what Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights are.
3: That's my wife's story. Oh, she fell in love
1: (laughs) with a gothically tormented bad boy. Yeah, if you can't tell. We're going to show this. I've been wanting to show this movie for three years or four years. And I think it would be a great way to get people a side door into into movies pre nineteen twenty nine is this documentary. It's only a half hour long. It's called Grass. No, not about weed or pot. Mm-hmm. But it's actually directed by the guys who would go on to make King Kong nineteen thirty three. It was directed by Marion C. Cooper, Ernst B. Schoedzak, and it stars and was written and frankly probably directed as well by this is just sexism of the early nineteen twenties, Marguerite Harrison. So the movie I just looked it up, it's actually seventy one minutes. I don't know why I remember it as being thirty minutes, but It's this incredible documentary about the Tiari people who are this Persian tribe who go over this incredible mountain every year at the season change to get to the fields on the other side. But it's not just them. They bring all their livestock, all their children. They literally are nomadic people who pick up stakes, ford this river on goat bladders, climb this mountain up into like 10,000 feet many of them die, many of them expire and the beginning of the movie is is like an Indiana Jones film. You meet Cooper, Shodzak and Harrison and they're in the desert getting to the Tiari people and you see them going through sandstorms real sandstorms and then they go to these nomadic fortresses and they're in the nomadic fortresses then they get to the Tiari people and one of the set piece sequences is when all these people ford this 50 foot long river that's raging on goat platters and you watch them put their five month olds on goat bladders and you're like, oh my, god, what am I watching? It's one of the most amazing action sequences you'll ever see because it's real. And I would show that to people to be like, that's a movie made in 1925. My only point being that I think the mistake we make is contextualizing it As if there wasn't a wealth of, you know, pornos were made in pre-1929. I could show you a 1915 porno, not that I want to, but everything was made back then. And we're going to show grass just as like, here's, it's a better documentary than a lot of documentaries later, which became Talking Heads. Because you couldn't have Talking Heads documentaries. It was just action. Another movie I'll just throw out there, a movie that I watch constantly is F.W. Murnau's Last Laugh, which many people know about it. Again, it's a film school movie you have to see. But it's a very famous movie because I believe there are only three or four inner titles in the entire picture. And the picture runs about 90 minutes. Inner titles being dialogue. Most movies, even Chaplin and Keaton movies, which are great silent film comedies, most of them have inner titles about every minute or more. But last laugh, you don't even notice it. And it's the story of a hotel doorman played by Emil Yawnings, who is aging. It's weirdly a movie that no one makes. It's about an age group that no one is interested in. He's an aging doorman in probably his early 60s and his whole sense of worth is that he is the doorman of like a Ritz Carlton to us, a Berlin fancy hotel. And the very beginning of the movie, the new young manager of the hotel sees him taking a break cause he's winded and puts him as a bathroom attendant. So he gets his uniform stripped and he's no longer the doorman and he has to go home, but he pretends to still be the doorman cause he's so embarrassed about this demotion. But the whole movie is told visually. There's a dream sequence. There's German expressionism. There's a sequence where the gossip gets out that he's been lying to people and the camera flies around to people's ears to intimate how gossip spreads in an apartment building and i watch it every year at least once because i'm like that's movie making and i've talked about it a lot john ford watched the last laugh and sunrise because he was at fox and he was like that's movies and even though ford had made movies in the silent era both he and alfred hitchcock saw the murnau pictures and the german expressionist pictures and separately Basically formed what we would call cinematic language in the West the American idiom or the English language medium because they transitioned into sound and so Ford and Hitchcock do this now from Ford and Hitchcock Kurosawa watches Ford and is so blown away by Ford that even wears the sunglasses You guys probably know this I've I've probably said this before but Kurosawa took his persona Like you would take uh, the James Dean or Marlon Brando persona, but he was like man Ford is so Cool. And then Akira Kurosawa <laughs> like put on sunglasses and acted like John Ford in Japan because he was his idol. And Bergman did the same thing. Bergman saw Ford pictures. And so then Bergman and Kurosawa and Fellini are so influenced by Ford that they basically influence, you know it, Spielberg and Scorsese in the 70s cats and Coppola. There's this bloodline this energy line, this force, I wish I could use a different word, the way as Lao Tzu says, of cinematic expression that goes back to that era. And I don't know since Spielberg, and please throw it out, who would you nominate as the filmmaker post Spielberg who is in this lineage? see yeah nobody my point yeah and my point is this spielberg met john ford and we're going to see that scene in the fablemans in november when david lynch plays john ford and my i'm going to go there and i'm going to transcend that's the last you'll ever of me because i'll transcend to the next level and i'll just be very happy or not or i'll stay in my seat and then just drag you all to see it
3: maybe they'll play it in 40x so it can
1: <laughs> the seats can rise <laughs> but anyway who would you nominate for the next generation in that language? This would be an 80s or 90s cat. It's like every 20 years. So it would be a 90s cat. Is there a 90s filmmaker that took that up? That would be Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, Tarantino. We, we did a whole podcast on 90s, yeah. Wong Kar Wai. Pedro Almodovar. You know, you can go in or you should go international.
0: I guess I just don't understand the question, really. I know. It's it's a pet theory you can bat away. I think I, I think the premise is maybe flawed.
1: But who's the visual filmmaker, the cinematic filmmaker with God-given talent right now? You know, people talk about Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, uh, Robert Eggers. Internationally, right now, we've got Joaquin Trier is popping up still. You
3: know, Bong Joon-ho. We've got Chan-woo Park. Bong Joon-ho is the first one that came to my mind that sort of has... But again, it's it's associating like that sometimes Spielberg edge to staging and blocking and like there's like a visual thing to it all
1: to play devil's advocate and maybe to Connor's sort of like I think the premise is flawed. I think the flaw in that argument is not acknowledging that then you take a style and adapt it to your time or you take a style and it's now a style for its moment. So take Parasite, Daniel, which I saw, you know, there's that shot where I think someone's telling a story and it's about the face and it's the face of the guy who's hiding in the basement. I had never seen a shot framed and lit. It was like one of the most exquisite shots I think I've ever seen. Now, it's not for me. I found it a little too arty and a little too composed for my own personal metabolism. That's me. It's not a knock on that. But cinematically, I was like, whoa, this is a filmmaker who is in control of everything. And it was unique and unique to Bong Joon-ho. So maybe the flaw in my premise is not acknowledging that how Murnau made movies in the 20s, how Kurosawa made movies in the 50s, how Spielberg made movies in the 70s is not how Bong Joon-ho makes movies in the 2020s.
0: And those differences between those eras would have—I imagine people were having a similar conversation back at that time, you know, and dismissing Spielberg for— you know whatever reason
3: for i keep thinking back to craftsmen of like animation particularly like i think Brad Bird as a visual craftsman with his team like Iron Giant, Incredibles, Ratatouille and then Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol there's such an understanding of as a craftsman what makes that genre tick and how to make these set pieces and milk them for everything that they're worth that even people on either end who have taken over Mission Impossible movies all feel completely different. And his feels like such an interesting standalone because his craft in the staging of the genre is so interesting. Ghost Protocol is still my favorite MI movie. Did you see Tomorrowland, his follow-up? No, no, I should. I don't think it's a super well-received movie. I think it's a fairly interesting movie, but there's a set piece in a house that's the same thing that his animation roots and just the understanding of how you visually stage this to milk it for everything it can be is such a... Cool introduction to things that I think is is not always the case for some of those. I do
1: think you can make a really strong argument that the best of Pixar is in the tradition of storytelling that originated in pre nineteen twenty nine. Because so much of the best of Pixar storytelling is this beautiful cinematic way of communicating things.
3: Yeah, like the first forty minutes of Wally.
1: There's no dialogue. Toy Story three. Just the visual of all of them in that garbage dump. <laughs> And they're going to head like to the fire and they all just hold hands. That's visual storytelling where you're like, this is about death. And all the imagery and the visuals and the sound is all emphasizing this move and acceptance of death
3: rather than them being like, we're going to die. Oh, well, I love you. I love you. Then you get into like the greats where I think of stuff like. The way Sam Raimi uses his camera as the visual storytelling device for horror, where it is as much a part of things for the scare and for the action that you're not telling like, oh no, the things outside, you're watching it. You are the thing for a second.
1: That led me to think about because I wanted to nominate, but I just think it's slightly different. But I, we've talked about them before, but like James Cameron, Peter Jackson, you could maybe point out his 80s, 90s aughts.
3: Ridley Scott in that era. It's tough because I associate things to like Spielberg has such a massive filmography and a lot of these directors have, John Ford's filmography is, is unbelievably massive. And so I think my, my brain looks for people with that. And a lot of filmmakers don't make movies at the same speed that they used to. So I have trouble associating one because there isn't a, the same output. You guys are bringing up great points about this, which is another aspect of that
1: era pre-1929 is that most movie makers because the industry was inventing itself. 1920s was already kind of codified. It's in 1920s were sort of where we are right now with streaming maybe, but people were inventing the medium. So, y- you know, if you could direct and you weren't a pain in the butt and you could bring things on budget and on schedule and it just kind of got by, you could direct five movies in a year or you could do 10 one reelers in a year. So the craft that those cats were getting, is just, there's not a commensurate level of craft now unless you're in YouTube or TikTok and you're putting out one a week or something, which would be, I guess, analogous to the ability, the, the development of your craft back then. And there's something to be said about that, too. Why? Why? an Akira Kurosawa, a John Ford, or a Steven Spielberg became that way. Spielberg was cranking him out in TV. Kurosawa was cranking him out as an AD before he ever directed an assistant director, which is totally different in Japan, that role. The role of an assistant director in Japan really is what it sounds like. You were writing and directing and shooting and editing and blah, blah, blah.
0: I did have one silent movie I wanted to shout out. as probably my favorite silent film, which is uh, I'm doing the awkward setup for the midi drop. Um it's Phantom of the Opera, the nineteen twenty five Lon Cheney starring Phantom of the Opera which I watched for the first time a few years ago. I think maybe it goes to the point that I watched this because I wanted to and not because I was made to. And that might go along with uh, me liking it more. Also it being like a horror film, which is you know interesting because you think of like something from the 20s like that's ah, not going to be scary. And to be fair, it's not really isn't that scary <laughs> watching it, but it's a great version of that story. Everybody knows, I'm not going to explain what happens in *Fan of the Opera, but uh, famously the makeup in it is like incredible for almost 100 years ago now, I'm looking at it. It apparently made people scream and faint when they saw it, which I kind of question the validity of that potentially because you always hear stories about that stuff where someone's like oh people they had to call an ambulance when they showed this movie or she
1: went into labor
0: I always love the story about uh, another favorite silent film of mine the one with the train coming at the screen and everyone watched it and they jumped out of the way because they thought a real train was coming I
3: have heard of that
0: one I watched Family Opera a few years ago for the first time because I wanted to watch this sort of like classic monster films from the early parts of the 20th century and I've always associated it the same way that like like Creature from the Black Lagoon is technically from a later era, but because of the way time shrinks is now part of that same lineage of like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and Invisible Man, which those are more contemporaneous to each other. And it weirdly, even though it was the only silent film with that bunch, ended up being one of my favorites. I think part of it is just how compelling of a story. Phantom of the Opera is, as noted, one of my actual favorite, favorite movies is a Phantom of the Opera riff, Phantom of the Paradise. You talk about visual storytelling. I mean, that makeup still like I'm looking at it right now. It looks still looks haunting like he looks like a evil little goober man, his face It looks like a skull, like a living skull.
1: My uncle used to have that still, a still of Lon Chaney in Phantom of the Opera. I don't know that, I've talked about it a lot, but my uncle made a movie called Chasing Dreams, and he was art director on Phantasm. And when I was a little kid, my uncle had an office in my grandparents' house, and he had stills up that he, I think he had just blown up or gotten from magazines. One of them was a still from Phantom of the Opera. I'd just stare at it. It was gripping to me even in 1980, 1981. I was like, what is that? Pop culture. Final thoughts. We—I
3: was not able to be there, which I will probably think about for the rest of my life. But we did um, a few weeks, months back. We did a day with Jim Cummings, the indie director, for three of his films and Q and A's. And I hate myself, but I I was revisiting some of his short film stuff because it's really interesting to watch. I find when I, especially when something comes out of a film festival that is kind of getting some excitement around it, I love to go back to look at the director's short films and kind of see where they came from. And Cummings has a bunch of of shorts from the last 10 years that are really interesting, including Thunder Road that became the thing. And sort of just this understanding of writer, director, actor, of how to get things made that he can afford, but also to have this control. And it's really interesting to see someone who's clearly on a rise to uh, top of their game level stuff. And also to start so strong, because I think Thunder Road is unbelievable. As a short film, I think it's one of my favorite short films, period. And then the feature so good. But I'd highly recommend all of his stuff, all of his short film stuff's up on Vimeo.
1: So I've seen the feature Thunder Road, which is about this pop in his early 30s. The movie starts at his mother's wake with a very awkward, comedic, tragic monologue he delivers as a eulogy, but you can tell he's going through crisis. And then the movie is about his crisis as a man, as a husband, as a father, but it's also very, very funny. How is the short different from the the feature?
3: The short is just the eulogy as a single take where he goes about it and then he sings Thunder Road, his, his mother's favorite song. But it's sort of the same thing that's just every emotion strikes as he tries to get this out. And it's sort of cringy because you want it to be over, but he's clearly suffering and trying to get through it for his own fruition, I guess. So I think what they expanded on to make the feature was a surprise. Cause it's sort of like, how do you, like you did it. You, you have everything here. And then I think what was expanded with the character, really worked for the future.
1: And watch these movies. Thank you, Jim Cummings, at Jimmy C, That's Me. He came, he did costume changes for each movie. I don't know that we <laughs> captured that, but he brought the original costumes. He was in costume for Thunder Road, in costume for Wolf of Snow Hollow, in costume for the beta test, including the mask from the anonymous sexual encounter. He did a and A after every movie that ran about a half hour, and then he stayed another hour and graciously talked to the audience. So thank you very much, Jim Cummings. We're very grateful and we wish you every success with your next movie and he just gave a bunch of great pointers and tips about how he made it happen and one thing he said Daniel that was fascinating was to your point he didn't know how to make a feature out of Thunder Road because he initially thought oh well that is the end but why why am I going to make something that just builds up to that monologue and I that's not a movie and then he said at some point he had the epiphany no the monologue is the first scene and he said if the monologue is the first scene which in any other movie would feel like the climax in the movie, where would you go from that? And then I guess that idea was, Oh, he's adrift as a cop and he's on the outs with his wife. They're going to get divorced and he's losing his daughter and alienating his daughter. And that opener is actually his breakdown. And can he come back from that? And I thought that's a really interesting insight into how movies are made because often your first idea is not the good one. At least I found that you sit on it for a little bit. and You're like, no, I do it this way. This is what that'll be. And that was a great story about how he came up with a feature because his first idea, I think, would be the standard idea. I'm going to build, do it. And then he was like, no, no, I got to start with it and get past it. And I was like, wow. I,
3: was, I think so much of it comes down to having like they clearly make a great doable script. But it's weird because it doesn't feel like they compromise to get it done on low budget. There's something that feels like they're just people that are very in control of the thing they want to make. It's dope.
1: Yeah, I cried. I think all three movies are very strong, and I recommend that people see them, and he's a voice, and I was so honored to have him. I will say, I think my personal favorite, uh, so far, he's only made three. Well, four, actually. He made one in 2010, he talked about. But my personal favorite of the three that we screened is Thunder Road. I, I just, the ending of that was uh, unbearably beautiful to me. I
2: started watching Mr. Big Show. Yeah, it wasn't that funny. So I stopped it and <laughs> went into something else. I love Bob Odenkirk, and I love David Cross, but. Uh... Oh, Mr. Show? Oh, Mr. Show. Mr. M- show, yes. Mr. Mr. Big, Big Show. show. I, was like, I, I th- thought
3: that was a wrestler's Show, Yeah, Big Show, the wrestler, make
2: a show? No, nah, I, I meant Mr. Show. I don't know. I don't know. This show was not that, wasn't that funny. So I stopped it and went to something else.
1: Did you see the Lie Detector sketch? I didn't get that far. I skipped the season two. The lie Detector sketch was the one I really loved in Mr. Show, where the whole premise is. They're doing a lie detector thing, and they keep asking him questions that must obviously be lies, but it's it's not tripping the lie detector. And so they're like, did you derail a train with your penis? And he was like, yes, once. And the lie detector doesn't go off, and he's like, for charity! It was for charity. That's one of my favorites. I love that show, so don't disparage it in
0: this house. Edwin, or all. Well, may,
2: may, maybe I'll give it a second chat, but after that, I, I watched uh, The Inglorious Bastards, the original uh, 1978 war picture. A lot of Nazi killing, a lot of, a lot of explosions, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, miniature sets, a lot of Nazis being killed. Very
1: Italian, too. Spaghetti war picture. Okay, so now we're going to crossfade Connor up.
0: I'll shout out two things because next episode, there's going to be a time skip. For most people, it's going to be two weeks. Between this and the next episode with the four of us. But for us, it's going to be like three months. So I want to clear my docket of things to shout out. And shout out John Waters' Serial Mom. Which I thought was hilarious. I don't know if anyone here has seen that. It's like an R-rated version of like a sitcom. (laughs) It's treated almost like a sitcom premise where like, what if mom was a serial killer? (laughs) But it's rated R, uh, 90 minutes, just like a pure wacky comedy. I would highly recommend it. And then I've also been playing this game. It's available for PC and Switch and a couple other places called Monster Train, which is like a card based video game where you play the denizens of hell. Who are trying to reclaim the nine circles of hell from heaven? And the way this is gamified is you have this little train with different carts and you fill the carts up with monsters and you can sort of alter the monsters and the bad guys quote unquote good guys will send in their angels to fight you and it's kind of hard to explain i didn't even really know until i started playing it i just knew people had recommended it to me so maybe look it up but if people like card games on like the more board game side and video games you definitely like it and uh Find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings
3: twitch.tv slash Nerdhalla. Hopefully still. Who
0: knows? It'll be three months from now. Maybe the world will have
1: ended. Yeah, do you
3: guys have any goals for you want to catch up on in three months? I hope I'm a big
0: pile
1: of goo. I respect that. I mean, I don't know, unless you're talking about pure energy. Reunited with the
3: goo baby okay i want to be four percent hotter
1: as in like climate wise or just physically attractive
3: pure sexual energy it's gonna be tough work but we'll try
1: how are we gonna judge that objectively who do we talk to
3: all in three months i'm gonna ask again (laughs) i guess for the first time i haven't asked yet take a look what you see now yeah we're not looking for person to cut the personality that's just gonna die. oh you're
1: just talking about pure just you just hotness
3: Energy, yeah. I just hope you don't overshoot.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, what if you're 25% hotter?
0: What if you're like a 1,000%?
1: Yeah, like people jump through windows
3: to get at you? Yeah, I'm scared. I don't want to do that.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So as Connor and Daniel have intimated, we are taking what's going to roughly be a three-month break. Well, no, exactly a three-month break for a host of reasons. When you hear this, as Connor pointed out, ironically, whatever has happened has happened. It will be towards the end of that three-month break. But we're going to be renovating our theater, not tearing it up from the floor up, just doing some things that we need to get done. We're also getting ready for, we always consider the beginning of our year October. And so there's a lot of ambitious goals as we always have every year, but from social media to our programming, to our events and taking the next three months to gear that up. Now we're not going anywhere. We're not disappearing. We're gonna be doing a summer speaker series at the Million Dollar Theater. And we have events every month. So July, we already have two events. They'll have passed when you hear this. Uh, And we're also doing a little summer break, a little recharge. I will say, Daniel, to answer your question, that I do I do have a goal, and the only thing I can tell you is that I will share that goal on the first podcast back from this break, and I'll tell you if I achieved it. Cliffhanger.
3: You cryptic motherfucker. <laughs> I'll see you in two weeks. I just wanted to say a naughty word on the podcast.
2: Or the way I say it, Dan, you...
1: Son of a bitch. I like how of all the racial slurs you could use, you pick on my Italian,
3: which I am. Again, if Sean Connery can say it in touchables. I wouldn't wouldn't base your vocab on that, because if you watch some movies, I think the worst thing you can call any of us right now, American. Well, let's change that, man. Yeah. Hey, maybe the world we come back to in three months or two weeks for the listeners will be a better one.
1: No, don't you I, I'm not giving up on this country. You can play taps. That just means I'm getting sleep, I'm re-energizing. I, I still believe in the nation. I still believe in this country, and I'm going to vote. I'm not ready to play taps for this country. Play reverie. Do you have reverie? Do no. you have the morning song?
0: Oh, see. <laughs> I, I got th- does
3: this work? <laughs> we're, only, we're only prepositioned for sadness. <laughs> <laughs> This would be a good one to come back to.
1: And on that note, have a have a great three months, guys. Our next Secret Movie Club auditory experience, oral experience, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. Our next Secret Movie Club auditory experience will be a defend this movie between Patrick McElroy and myself. Patrick writes blogs for us. We're actually going to be talking about two late period Scorsese movies that I think some people love both. And that is Hugo and Wolf of Wall Street. I admire Hugo, but I don't actually think that Hugo works. Amen. I love Wolf of Wall Street, and I do think Wolf of Wall Street works, but many people think that Wolf of Wall Street falls prey to that it is satirizing the very thing it's enjoying. So Patrick and I will be talking about those two. They're very different late. That's Scorsese. And then he went and made Silence. (laughs) And then he went and made uh, The Irishman. And now he's making Killers of the Flower Moon. But uh, that'll be the Defend This Movie. As always, this episode was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd-Cruz. You can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can get tickets at Eventbrite. Just Google Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. Connor, quick reminder about what's coming up. Once again, this Saturday, September 24th at the Million Dollar
0: Theater, we have a screening of David Lynch's Lost Highway on 35mm with editor Mary Sweeney in attendance for a QA. and a You can find out all of that info at secretmovieclub.com, but the more important, bigger headline here is that we have confirmation that Edwin has, in fact, been corrupted by the powers that be that I'm not allowed to say here. I apologize that you're going to have to hear more of his mad ravings about Rocky 3 after we cut back to the past um, but I am contractually obligated to keep them in
1: that's just how Hollywood works folks oh, I can't wait, I
0: can't wait
2: Rocky 3, Rocky 3 man find for- some sure good movies man Showing some sure guts
1: Right, as a community at secretmovieclub.com alright guys I love you See talk to you soon I hope, God willing <laughs> see ya Rocky 3 and I love you family
0: Looks like an ice cold Coca-Cola.
1: Ugh. Ah. That's strong.
3: That's very strong.
1: There's such a thing as strong Coca-Cola.
3: <laughs> you have your
1: tasty beverages,
3: no it's alcohol. I have my Coke. Alright. He cold brewed it strong. <laughs> Nitro brewed Coca-Cola. Yeah.
0: It's made it's Coke made with that thick water they make for people with like trouble swallowing. Oh
1: yeah. I know that well from my grandparents. Oh man, that's strong coke. Like gelatinous (laughs) Coke? (laughs) Whoa. All right, Edwin.